Hi, Talking and Chill listeners. You're about to hear a new episode of Talking and Chill, but this episode was recorded way back on March 8th. At the time, we thought we were getting ahead of the game, but now it may seem a bit strange to hear any conversation about Passover that doesn't mention the strangeness of trying to observe the holiday in the middle of a global pandemic. It's kind of a time capsule to a different and more innocent time. We're recording a special mini episode to talk about how coronavirus has changed our Jewish lives, and that episode should be in your feed today as well. We hope that next year we'll all be celebrating Pesach in Jerusalem, or at least in closer proximity to our families and friends. In the meantime, please take care of yourself and stay safe. We're wishing you and everyone a liberating and joyous holiday. Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. This month, we're talking to Hilara Tzabi, a writer and editor based in Israel, about Eddie Hilesim. She's going to tell us if I'm pronouncing that right. A Jewish writer, academic, and diarist who lived in Amsterdam during World War II and was killed in, a, in Auschwitz. For our second segment, we're talking about cleaning for Passover. So for our first topic, we are joined by Hilara Tzabi, managing editor of Ritual Well, joining us from Israel to speak with us about Eddie Hilesim. Welcome, Hila. Hi, thank you. It's so exciting to speak with you. Um, and I'm especially excited because I had never heard of this writer before you started posting about her on Facebook. So. I would be curious just to start if you could tell us a little bit about like how did you learn about her um, and what did you first learn about her that made you so enthusiastic about her? So I first learned about Eddie Hillesim through Rabbi Chaviva Ner David in Israel. Um, and I forget exactly why she had sent me the information about her, but I think we were in conversation about different things related to spirituality. And she was like, oh, you should read Eddie Hillesim. And my mind was just blown when I started to look at her work. And I also had this kind of like moment where I thought, why have I never heard of her before? I've had a very extensive Jewish education. I've been in Jewish day school from kindergarten through high school. I went on to study Jewish philosophy at JTS. Never came across her work before. So I was kind of shocked and kind of sad for... 20-something-year-old me that I didn't get to read her during that time because I think she would have had a very, very big influence on my spiritual development. Um, so I've been just kind of an evangelist for her at this point, reading her work, and, um, and I just developed a course, um, an online course, to share her work um, because I just think that she's such an incredible Jewish writer and I don't think that she is as well known in the Jewish world, which I think is very interesting and curious. I want to probe a little bit about why she might not be so well known in the Jewish world. I mean, one of the things that I was reading about her is that it sounds like she also dabbled in Christianity or at least studied a lot of Christianity. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, she studied a lot of different um, sources. She was very interested in the Bible itself um, study. And I'm not sure to what degree. I know that it included the New Testament. 
Um, but um, she also was very into Russian literature. She studied um, Dostoevsky. She was also very interested in Rilke. And, um, and, I, and I know that she was influenced by also St. Augustine. So she had a lot of different sources and she was kind of on her own spiritual journey. Um, and there was also this whole journey started because she had this relationship with her therapist, um, Julie uh, Spear. And that's a whole f- interesting story in and of itself. But he kind of got her to start um, going into this direction of spiritual searching. Um, but then it really, like if you read through her diaries, she kind of takes off on her own with it too. So he was that first influence, but then she really spent a lot of time in her study, um, at her desk, reading all of these different books and kind of making sense of these things for herself and really crafting her own spiritual vision of the world. So, um, so she really makes it her own, which I think is really beautiful and inspiring. And her published works are just the eight volumes of her diary. Is that right? Meaning she didn't write a philosophical treatise that people might refer to like, oh, the Etty Hillisum philosophy of it's, oh, you know, if you read through the diary during this phase of her life, you see. So that might also be a way that um, people haven't discovered her as a philosopher, as a spiritual thinker in that way. Yes, exactly. So it's it's the diaries and her letters from Westerbork, where she was the transit camp in, um, in Holland um, before she um, was transferred to Auschwitz. So we only have the diaries and letters pretty much. Um, but a lot of writers who study her have talked about how she would have gone on to either be a great novelist or philosopher or something. And it's the seeds of that work is, is there in the, in the diaries. It's just that she didn't have that chance. Um, but there's so much distilled wisdom there that even just having the diaries and letters is enough you know, for a person for a whole lifetime to read her work. I'm curious, building on that, like, I know that you're teaching this class on her, and I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the class and, like, what you are, kind of, who is it for and what you are hoping that people might get um, from encountering her works in your class. So the class is for really anybody um, who feels connected to um, the idea of spiritual development, Um, And also for people who have some kind of a creative practice, so that could be writers or artists of any kind. And though it's not a traditional writing workshop or workshop like that, but it's going to be using Eddie's writings as a springboard to do our own creative writing and also to kind of think about and explore our own spiritual practices. So that might mean thinking about prayer or writing certain prayers or trying out your own different way of praying if you have a prayer practice or meditation. And what's so amazing about her work is that it dovetails with all kinds of spiritual traditions. So that's why a lot of people outside the Jewish community have embraced her because there are threads throughout her work that are you know, somehow connected to Christianity, even though they're not Christian at all by themselves. But you could see why a, per- a person who's Christian might feel connected to some of her ideas, um, very Buddhist connected ideas, um, and also very Jewish. And it's just that the Jewish piece, I feel, hasn't been as widely publicized. It's been studied a little bit, and I've found all these different conference proceedings and essays that I've been reading, but it's still not that well known in the Jewish world. I mean, there's also 
it's not a religion, but there's also feminism just sort of coursing through at least the pieces that I read. Um, she, 1930s, 1940s, she seems pretty sexually liberated, right? And and she writes about that explicitly. Yes. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that maybe it wasn't taught in Jewish day school. Um, right. <laughs> I think that um, certainly, okay, it, it's probably better for a college age audience. This isn't the diary of Anne Frank. Now, of course, she has been compared to Anne Frank as sort of the adult version of Anne Frank. Um, but I think that also kind of minimizes her work because she's so intellectually sophisticated. Um, you know, she was 27 when she started writing these diaries. And she was really at that moment where she was just beginning to develop amazing ideas. And, um, and what you learn from the diaries is that she didn't believe in monogamy and she wasn't really sure she wanted to get married or have kids. Um, she also has an abortion. And these are things that perhaps aren't um, embraced by mainstream Jewish communities. So now for me, I think it's just, wow, you know, as a feminist, just look at her in, in the early 1940s, having that kind of bold um way of being in the world that she could embrace herself just the way that she was. And she really had a love for all people and she didn't want to be tied down by one person. And that's kind of amazing. I mean, we don't really necessarily promote that idea, but I think it's really cool. And I think that's um, not something that we see a lot in our um, Jewish feminist sheroes, I guess. Uh, another thing that I, I noticed <clears throat> when reading about her was just her incredible um, I feel like optimism is kind of the wrong word, but she's like so she she has this exudes this positivity in her writing, um, even when she's living in like the darkest, bleakest times imaginable. And like, <laughs> I guess I see that as someone leave it, living in some pretty dark, bleak times. But it she just seems to have been able to kind of somehow experience this like incredible joy in the midst of like really really terrible scary things um and I think you know it's funny because the um the Broadway show of Diary of Anne Frank it ends with Anne and her family being captured by the Nazis and uh a voiceover of Anne saying I still I still really do believe that people really are good at heart. And like that always struck me. And I know other people have written about this. This isn't like a new thing from me that like that's a kind of an intellectually dishonest presentation. Like when she wrote those words, she didn't know that she and her family would be captured by the Nazis. And that like maybe that's not an appropriate kind of overlay onto that experience. But it actually seems like that is kind of true of Eddie Hillism. Like she was like working, literally seeing people going off to the camp. She was very aware of what was happening and she did somehow seem to be able to live this kind of like incredibly joyful life even in the midst of this, which I think is like both like so beautiful and inspiring and like very difficult. <laughs> Yes, yes to all of that. And I've also read a lot about Anne Frank and, and kind of how her memory, in many ways, the way it's taught has been kind of whitewashed in the sense of exactly what you just said. 
um, and that her end was horrific. And we don't focus on that because we want to have that positive message at the end that people are good and that we need to embrace all of humanity. And yet Eddie Hillson really kept that um, amazing, expansive love of humanity till the very end. And we, you know, when we see that in her letters from Westerbork, that she is witnessing really horrific things. Now, of course, this is not Auschwitz yet. And from what I understand, a lot of people just weren't really sure what was going to happen next. Not everybody was resigned to the idea that we were all going to get deported to Auschwitz. They knew about it. They had heard rumors, but it kind of developed day by day. And so people many times held out hope that maybe they'd, it, the war would just end, um, that they'd be able to go home. And at a certain point in time, people just started to realize this isn't ending and everybody who comes to Westerbork is going to go to Auschwitz. So she knows that. Um, and you see in a few examples in her letters where she is trying to face the reality and she does face that reality. She never covers over it with, but everything's great. Um, she really believed in witnessing the truth and being authentic to what was happening around her. And the reason that she went to Westerbork was to be with the Jewish people. She could have escaped and she chose to go because she felt like it was her duty to be there for other people. Um, but she... And one of the great quotes from her is that she wanted to be the thinking heart of the barracks, that she saw people around her kind of falling apart and also people who didn't want to really face reality. They didn't want to think about what was happening. She wanted to think about it and she wanted to witness it exactly as it was. But even through that witnessing, she had this way deeper and more expansive understanding of reality and of God and of humanity. Um, and it's just extraordinary to be in a circumstance like that. Like most people would not be able to have that perspective, but she had developed over time such a strong spiritual core that she was able to face the reality around her. And she had chosen it too, because she could have gotten out and she just, she believed that it was her purpose to be there um, to help other people who were in the camps. And, um, and at the end, it's, um, I forget if this is in a letter or if somebody had said this, but um, she throws out her last letter from the train and says, we left the camp singing. Or I think it, it was written in the letter or in the postcard. We left the camp singing. And that was when she was deported to Auschwitz. Now, of course, we don't know anything past that in terms of what was her experience, but it sounds like she died pretty soon after arriving to Auschwitz. So... Um, that that's that's what happened, but um, yeah, it's it's an extraordinary vision, and I also felt so attached to her um, right now in this historical moment, where like, okay, it's not the Holocaust. I don't want to compare the Holocaust to other things, but there's just horrible things happening right now, and I've never encountered a writer like this who wrote from such a dark place and had such resilience. Um, it's it's amazing. I wonder, actually, just because so much of the writing we have, because it's it's uh, pre-deportation diary, um, is about this, uh, about her philosophy sort of separate from the Holocaust or while the Holocaust is sort of the ramping up in the background. But she isn't a Holocaust writer in the same way, right? It, it doesn't seem like her writing is primarily about that experience. And so... I'd love to have you, to the extent that such a thing is possible, just give us sort of a quick snapshot of 
what what you might say are the high points of her philosophical approach if you were thinking that what's the what's the top paragraph on the syllabus if that makes sense right um well and also just to say that you know it's interesting that she does develop a philosophy and spiritual orientation sort of parallel to what's happening around her um but she kind of you know her desk and her her room where she where she wrote was kind of like this almost um like a little cave of hers where she would go in and she also talks about prayer as a, a protective wall around her um, so she was very much sort of in the historical moment, but also kind of created this force field around her with, with her, the way that she thought about God and herself and, and other people. Um, and, and there are many references to, there are some res- references to things like talking to a Nazi and seeing him as a, as a human being. Um, so there is that. Um, but then and, and it's all connected really to her spiritual vision that she had this sense of a deep connection to herself, very honest um, connection to herself in terms of seeing the good and the bad. Um, so it was very much um, starting inward and going outward to the rest of the world. So when she starts to develop her ideas about God, it's very much a deep inward sense of God being as a part of her. Um, and that's also a very mystical, that connects her to the mystical, the different mystic traditions um, of different, both Judaism and outside of Judaism. And, and then it was that grounding in this inner connection to God, love of God, love of self, that then allowed her to love all of mankind, all of humankind. So that thread is there throughout her work that it's always about going back in and exploring the self and being very honest with yourself about what, what's going on. And even from that place of seeing things just as they are, which also connects to Buddhist traditions of meditation and, and noticing what is, then being able to see the world from a much more expansive place. So it's, it's, it's very hard to even just summarize her work because there's so many different connections, but it is a very deep connection between the inner spirituality and the outer. And it really starts from within. It's not about praying to a God that's up in the sky. One of the questions I had was about these Eddie Hillisum cards that you sent us a link to. And I was curious because they're created by an Israeli and Palestinian activist. And here I'm thinking like, you know, a philosopher and Holocaust writer, what does that have to do with activism Israel-Palestine. Um, but it seems like these cards are really about that recognizing humanity in all people. Is that, can you talk a little bit about these cards? Sure. They, um, they took their favorite quotations from Eddie Hillisum's diaries and letters and had, and I'm not sure if they used a different, I forget if they used a, the existing English translation from, um, an interrupted life. Um, but then they translated these quotes into Hebrew and into Arabic. And it's specifically for the purpose of connecting Israelis and Palestinians and everybody to this deep wisdom of loving the other, um, loving the other across boundaries. And, um, and, and her work is filled with that. It's really just about loving humanity um, exactly the way we are and even seeing the worst parts of humanity and still believing that there is love and that, that that's what's gonna save us all. 
And um, so I'm so ex- inspired by um, Dina Awad and Emma Shamba Ayalon, who um, translated her work and have been going around to communities in Israel, Palestine, and in Europe. Um, they have a, a documentary being made about them right now, which is really cool. And they've and they um, last year had a an alternative Holocaust memorial ceremony in Jerusalem. And they're planning another one for this year on April 20th. So it's the kind of work that can really bring people together. Um, and honestly, in Israel and Palestine, it's just really hard. And I know that there are dialogue groups and there are things that are being done. But I think Eddie's work is the perfect material to be using to have people sit down and talk to each other. It's just beautiful. It struck me when I was reading about her, what a different narrative hers is than what we usually read about victims of the Holocaust. That just like her, everything about her her life, like her kind of like sophistication, her sexuality, her spirituality that she was like Jewish, but also was like really interested in other religions and seems to have like been invested in Christianity to the extent that some Christians want to claim her as Christian and that she like really wasn't at all invested in like fighting the Nazis, but was invested in like experiencing joy. Like all of those things are things that we do not hear when we in conversations about victims of the Holocaust and even in conversations about kind of like Jewish life pre-World War II. Um, And it just made me think about how even though I feel like I have learned and thought certainly a lot about the Holocaust in my life, it still kind of fits into a pretty narrow channel in my thinking. Um, And it, it was just cool to think about how there might be ways to kind of broaden that and think about what it was like in different ways. Yeah, and just made me think about kind of like the, the educational challenges that I, I think are kind of implicit in talking about the Holocaust and, and how like now as an adult, I can be like, oh, actually I'm really interested in learning about kind of like the sexually free women who were involved in this and you know what, what the experience was like for like people who were identified as Jewish but did not necessarily feel Jewish to themselves, um, or maybe only kind of did. Um, and I think that those things are all just kind of interesting lenses for history. You really don't hear about characters like her um, from the Holocaust. And, um, and I think especially in Jewish education, you know, because she was pretty much, you know, quote unquote, an assimilated Jew, a secular Jew, um, she doesn't fit into a lot of our categories of, of you know, what we're taught um, is is Jewish, um, and but I think for that reason we've missed out on on such an amazing um, example of a Jewish woman and a Jewish writer and thinker. And the fact that she hasn't been given that, you know, that the due that I think she deserves is is really unfortunate because she is she can be such a great example for us today um, in terms of really that inner strength um, of facing reality and facing dark times with 
a profound strength and a profound reservoir of love and spirituality. Um, and that she crafted her own spirituality, that she wasn't following anyone else's version of religion. And that's why she can be claimed by so many different religions, because she was just doing her own thing. And she just happened to touch on some of the major um, wisdom of different traditions without necessarily having studied all of them. So for that reason, I, I personally feel like I want to claim her as this Jewish writer um, that I can look to as an example for how to how to do my own creative work and, and inner work. Um, and that's just something that was missing for me in my education. If anything, reading the materials that you shared about her and the bit that I was able to find online, it feels like <laughs> maybe the reason in part that she's been overlooked thus far is because she really seems like she was so far ahead of her time that actually she's perfect for right now. Mm. Um, that it's... Um, I mean, first of all, I don't know how common it was for a young unmarried woman to go to the city, you know, and go study at an advanced level Slavic literature at the university in Amsterdam um, and then to be somebody who thinks of themselves as transcending different traditions, constructing their own spirituality from the threads that make sense to them. The threads in her writing that have to do with mindfulness meditation feels like something that you might be reading that was written this year. Um, the notion that, oh, even um, even a small head can be piled high with too, cluttered with too many concerns, or that's a, a paraphrase, but that phrase feels like something that, not to cheapen it, but it's something that my yoga teacher might say to me today, um, <laughs> meaning that it's, it's the deeper version of something that we might see people drawing on in in a mindfulness practice that's very of the moment. Um, and so it just feels like, I, I can't believe this is, this is coming to us from the 1940s. This is startling in that way. It's, it's amazing. And I, I don't know where that came from for her um, because I'm not sure to what degree they had access to um, Eastern um, traditions. I mean, I'm sure it came through a bit through psychology and, and she was, she was coming through psychology, um, and different spiritual traditions, but I don't know to what degree she was actually reading those kinds of texts, but she clearly got meditation. I mean, everything, there's so many examples in her work of, um, mindfulness and of being with what is and being in the present moment and, and holding, the good and the bad and, and the darkness with, um, it's just incredible that she came to that mostly on her own and probably, you know, I mean, you, you know, through somebody like Rilke, I mean, a lot of the, 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 the literary, um, sources that she read also had some strains like that in them as well. I think Rilke is an example of that, but, um, but really the way she does it, it's, it's surprising. I also like, I, the fact that she kind of started on this whole journey of like writing her diaries and delving into her like own spirituality and all of that because of her aunt, her psychoanalyst who she also was sleeping with. I was like, I need like a whole book just on that. Like was, were all of the analysts sleeping with their patients? It seems like kind of, yes. Yeah. Like I, I need to know a little bit more about that. Yes, that piece of the story is is really fascinating. And, you know, 
he was sleeping with other patients and she knew. Right. It seems like it was like part of his practice. <laughs> yeah. And he had like this right. fiance who was in, I don't remember, I think she was in Germany like in at one London. point, but maybe then in yeah. London. And, um, but she knew and she didn't care. I mean, you know, she struggles with it in a few places where she's like, I'm trying not to be possessive over him. She loved him. I mean, it was, but she also was sleeping with her landlord that she lived with. Like, I mean, it's, I just, I can't even, but, um, so I don't know, you know, and I, I kind of, I cringe when I, I see these examples of like the psychoanalyst that sleeps with all his patients. Like, I just like, it's so gross that like, you know, clearly this man is like taking advantage of these younger women. Like for me, I don't, I don't like to hear that. But at the same time, when I hear her version of it, I think like, wow, she was very liberated. And, you know, she was probably suffering a little bit from that sense that like he was he belonged to to all of his patients but um but she kind of came through that and was like I don't even care you know um I don't necessarily believe in monogamy and I don't need to possess one person and she just came to a very enlightened view of love um and yeah I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this um and especially from the woman's point of view that she it really feels like an empowering story that she wasn't I don't know I feel like he was probably taking advantage of her to some degree and that he also really loved her but um but you don't see her as somebody who was taken advantage of Hila thank you so so much for speaking with us today this was really fun and honestly like I had never heard anything about um Eddie Hillism until you told us about you know suggested this so uh, I'm so grateful for that and so excited to start reading her book, her diaries. Yes, thank you. I'm so glad people are going to read her more now. Thanks for evangelizing. Has your class already started? Should we plug your class? Yes, it is starting in May. Uh, the exact date, I will look it up right now just to make sure I don't get it wrong. So the name of the course is um, Creating Resilience writing and spiritual practice inspired by Eddie Hillisom. And it starts Sunday, May 3rd. There are four sessions and it's all online. So you can register. And if for some reason you can't attend live, you can catch up with the recordings. And it's being offered through Ritual Well and Reconstructing Judaism. And it's really open to anyone. So um, I, I encourage anybody who's interested to join. Awesome. All right, well, we will include a link to registration in the show notes. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much, Hila. For our second segment today, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite activity, cleaning for Passover. Yay. Um, <laughs> so we were trying to think of something that was connected to Pesach, but maybe was not like specifically text based. Um, and I thought of this because... I feel like there is just so much anxiety and tension, particularly for Jewish women, around preparing for Pesach, particularly the cleaning. Well, there's like, I feel like there, there's two focuses. Like there's people who are like crazy about, and I don't mean that in a negative way, like in really intense about cleaning and people who are really intense about cooking and people who are really intense about both. But I think there's often like people for whom the focus is more on one than on the other. Um, and yeah, I kind of just wanted to get into it <laughs> because I feel like there's a lot there. Um, 
So yeah, what do you what do you all think? How how do you approach your own? Let's start with our own practices. How do you approach your own cleaning for Passover practice? Well, this year is different than previous years for me for two reasons. One is that I now have a mobile child that eats Cheerios. (laughs) And two is that this is actually the first year, believe it or not, ever that I am planning to do a full kitchen kosher for Pesach. So making my kitchen kosher for Passover for the first time. Um, Basically, my husband and I have been married. This will be our, I guess, ninth Pesach as a household. Um, And we have always gone to one set of parents or the other for all of the core holiday portions of the week of of, of Passover. And so we've always been home for like, I don't know, two or three days in the middle somewhere. And it just wasn't worth doing the full changeover of making your oven ready to cook. And, and so what we would do basically is make our microwave kosher for Passover, clean our fridge and get takeout. And this is even when we were living in Philadelphia and kosher for Passover takeout is not like an abundant thing. Yeah. I was like, up, what are you even talking about? <laughs> like frozen meal mart meals uh-huh. from the shop, right? Freezer section okay. and like matzah and cream cheese, because if you're only going to be home for a couple of days, it's really just not worth it to try and cook. So that has always been our situation in the past. It will not be our situation this year, but it has led me to realize that I have a split in my head between cleaning and koshering, mm. like cleaning your space. Cause even if you're not going to be cooking, you still need to not accidentally encounter chametz that could mix in with your food. You need still not to own any chametz, right? Things need to be clean and designated, which is not the same thing as like self-cleaning your oven so that you could super intensely prepare for the holiday. So I've always cleaned, um, but I've never koshered before. And I've realized that the koshering feels like a much bigger undertaking to me, not because the process of putting your oven on self-clean mode, now that I finally have a self-cleaning oven, thank you so much. Um, Now, not that that's the biggest deal, but the notion that like you have to have it done a certain amount of time in advance so that you can so that you can cook in your kosher for Passover kitchen. And then what are you eating during the non Passover pre Passover? But my kitchen's already ready for Passover period. Um, And so just the logistics of the timeline are what feels stressful to me. Not like the getting it done. The getting it done is a pain, but like many things in life are a pain, like whatever. (laughs) Um, So it's really just the coordination of all of it and making sure that like all of the moving pieces work for our family still eating during those days and coordinating with our travel plans. And are we gonna, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. I think a month out is when you have to start plotting, just like putting things in calendars even this is the anxiety uh, the anxiety is rising as we're having this conversation <laughs> sorry i think for me i have everything has turned down a notch um because basically what we do in my household is we just sort of section off the chametz in the refrigerator and there are a few cabinets and we just like clean the spaces that are going to be designated as for Passover. Um, So that turns down the intensity of the cleaning. And then for the cooking, 
Zahava, maybe similar to you in years past, like we just always go to one set of parents or family. Um, so we also just like buy some kosher for Passover food and basically roast a bunch of vegetables in our glass Pyrex dishes and call that eating. Um, <clears throat> so, but I, I still, I get into this mentality of like, oh, they have this kosher for Passover pasta sauce. Well, we're definitely going to make matzo pizza at some point, so we've got to buy it. Da, 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 da. Um, so the procuring of food becomes its own um, activity and sort of like competition with myself almost, like how much can I find for how cheap and how far in advance. Um, but the the cleaning... Um, one of the practices that I'm really trying this year and actually outside of Passover too, is bringing the rest of my family, which is my husband and a seven month old. So he's not going to participate that much. Um, bringing others into the cleaning with me, um, inspired in part by Marie Kondo, <laughs> who <laughs> talks about like cleaning as a family activity. And if you want your kids to be comfortable cleaning, you have to um, invite them. So that, that's really my intention for this year to, if I can turn down the anxiety for myself enough to invite others in, because I also, it's just not right that we go to our families for most of our meals. We don't do as much koshering as a lot of other families do. And yet it still all falls to me. Like, come on, we can share this. I am definitely a person for whom the cleaning is not like the part that makes me stressed out. So I host seders and um, as a result, like I do a lot of koshering and cooking. And so for me, it's like, I feel very lucky to be able to afford to hire someone to do a lot of cleaning. And the way that we do it is um, on the day before Erev Pesach, she comes and does a like deep clean of the kit. I've like cleared everything out of the kitchen. She comes in the morning and does a deep clean of the kitchen. Um, and while she's doing that, the oven is being koshered and then um while she's doing that I'm like buying all the produce I need which is always like a shocking amount and then um <laughs> and then how many tons of potatoes oh my god it's just like I go to like the market in Reading Terminal and I spend like three hundred dollars at the cheap produce place and they're always like what <laughs> what is happening at your house what Anyways. soup kitchen are you running <laughs> Anyways, um, so like while she does that, I'm buying the food. And then when I get home, I immediately start cooking. And I'm basically cooking for 36 hours, not just me, my partner. And we have a friend who comes in and helps us. And then the next morning while we're cleaning, while we're cooking um, and preparing for the setter, she is the our person who we've hired to clean cleans the whole rest of the house basically in the way that she just normally does um I don't really have her do anything extra except I like 
pay her more <laughs> and, and hope that she takes that to mean like be a little bit more um, exacting this time. Um, but I basically, I do not worry about like crumbs or a Cheerio or any of that stuff. Um, I guess I have, I just, I guess I just like rest very heavily upon the like, um, be your chametz. Like once I burn the chametz, I'm like, I, you know, it's all dust to me now. <laughs> like I just, I, it's not that I make no effort, but I wouldn't say that I make a really special effort because I feel like I'm just so focused on the like logistics of making meals for 30 people that I just am like, you know, whatever. How many vacation days is that? This is what it comes down to for me for when I think about the logistics of it and making sure that you can kosher not so early that you can't feed people before Pesach, but then early enough that you need to cook. It sounds like you basically give yourself, like you said, 36 hours to make all of the food. And in order for that to work, it sounds like you need to not be at your paid job uh, for at least two full days before Pesach. So usually, yeah, that, that's what it has been in the past. Although until recently, I worked for the city of Philadelphia, which weirdly is closed for Good Friday. And for the past two years, Good Friday was also Erev Pesach. So I already had off that day. And so I would take off one additional day. This year, I think I'm taking off. So Pesach starts on Wednesday night. I've taken off the day Wednesday. And I think what I'm going to try and do is take off half a day on Tuesday. The problem is that it's like I, I'm taking off Wednesday for sure and Thursday and Friday because they're Yom Tov. So <laughs> if I also take off Tuesday, I'm only working one day that week and I'm, and I'm taking off two days the following week. So it's a little not ideal from a being a productive worker perspective. Um, but what can you do? Um, I mean, I, this is kind of neither here nor there, but I do feel like this coming fall, all of the Chagim are on weekends. So right. I'm going to be way more present at work than I have been in the past several years in the, in the fall. Um, so if this, you know, if the two week period around Pesach, I am a lot less present, everybody's going to have to just roll with it. Um, but yeah, it has been I, that I take off two full days and this year I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to swing that work-wise. But the other thing is in the past, because the setters were, in the past two years, because the setters were Friday night and Saturday night, I had to have all of the cooking done for both days before the, the first mm. Seder began. And this year I will be able to do some of the like preparing of stuff on the second day right. um, before the Seder. So that. I'm super excited about, although also it's like, you still have to think about like, what are all of the like electric things that I can't do, <laughs> you know? Like there's still a fair amount of pre-cooking that I'm gonna have to do. And also just like, you don't want, it's very, it has been very nice to have um, the day after the first Seder be a day where you can just kind of like hang out and you aren't spending the whole day cooking again. And so I would still like to not have that first day of Chag be like super stressful. So there's, there's a lot to balance, mm -hmm. but 
As you can see, like I have a lot of thoughts about like managing the cooking and I've basically just outsourced the cleaning entirely. And like, I think that that was basically my mom's approach. And that's kind of what I ended up with. But that is definitely how I feel about this. Like I, I'm just like the cleaning. It feels more spiritual than like anything else. Like, I feel like I do have to do a lot of, I do end up doing a lot of kind of like intense emotional work around preparing for Pesach, but it doesn't like involve a mop. Mm -hmm. Do either of you guys find either the cleaning or the resulting cleanliness to be especially satisfying as compared with any other cleaning during the year? I totally Maybe do. that was an emphatic hand <laughs> raise yes, I find that it. our podcast listening audience cannot see. <laughs> I find it so satisfying. I, I think in part there are certain acts of cleaning that I only do in my pre-Pesach cleaning. I only clean my oven before Passover. I don't know if that's gross, but like I just I don't know. We just don't clean it. Um, I also I only clean I get a deep clean of my car an interior clean. And oh, my gosh, that feels so satisfying <laughs> before Passover. Um, does it feel spiritually satisfying? Well, I mean, in the way that like, you know, you sort of feel like this optimism when everything's clean in front of you, like, wow, I can do anything. I am so together an adult. Um, but yeah, I I love that pre-Passover clean feel. I think it gets a little bit muddied by um, if you cover certain surfaces with aluminum foil, uh, that, that just doesn't have the right aesthetic to me. But before the aluminum foil comes out, I feel really good. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I feel the opposite. So I don't feel particularly satisfied by like the, I don't know, the apparent vacuum row lines <laughs> in my living room rug. <laughs> but like the kitchen, I guess what feels satisfying to me is not the cleaning, but the what might idiomatically be called the turning over. Mm -hmm. So like the switching from non-Pesach space to Pesach space in an apparent way. And what that means for me in large part is my counters are covered with aluminum foil. <laughs> and so I, because in the past we have not quote unquote made Pesach, meaning we've like been home for a few days and gotten takeout. We don't own a whole set of dishes. Um, we don't own a whole set of pots. We have like a couple of very select things that we need for very specific purposes. And so the morning before Pesach, you'll see like my counters are covered in aluminum foil and there are like piles of disposable plates, cups, utensils, like they're like the neatly lined up boxes of matzah. There's, you know, very specific, like here's what we're going to need in this very visually obvious way. And that feels very satisfying. There's something about like not just dirt or mess cleared away, but like the year has been cleared away mm -hmm. for this week. Mm -hmm. Even if it's making way for something that is admittedly its own kind of organized clutter. Right. right. I kind of identify in between both of you. Like, I love the moment when I have taken all of my, like, regular year stuff down to the basement. And I am waiting for the person who's going to clean my kitchen to come. And it looks, like, <laughs> empty and thus clean. But then... 
as soon as she's done and I'm like bringing up all of my Pesach stuff from the basement, then it's like full of stuff again. And it's like, I mean, it's very, it's satisfying to have it be clean, but then it stays clean for like 15 minutes <laughs> before right. I have like starting to cook meals for 30 people and therefore not, the kitchen is not clean. Um, so that part is, yeah, it's kind of like, it is satisfying and then it's gone like extremely quickly. I'm curious like what you all make of what I feel like is like a very, there is a strain of Jewish femininity that is like kind of deeply, deeply invested in cleaning for Pesach in a way that feels like neurotic and just like very stressful to me to even kind of like peripherally experience. And I'm curious, like if you experience that as well and what you kind of make of it. I think there's a positive spin to it in part because I experience it via Facebook and Twitter and other like social media communities. And so for me, the neuroses is also a desire to connect um and as somebody who's lived as all of you as as both of you have as well lived in a lot of different jewish communities across the country it feels like this way of connecting with one another leading up to this big event in the, in our year um that a lot that we're we're not we're not at each other's seders but we're a part of this preparation together so I see a positive spin to it, though, obviously, there's a lot of anxiety wrapped up in it. Um, and I think that obviously there's a gendered component. But for me, if I if I look at my social media feed, it's men and women who are, you know, posting photos or bemoaning the smell of their self-cleaning oven. And, you know, it, it does get shared. So the shul that I used to go to in New Jersey before we moved up to Toronto, um, I received an email once advertising, I don't know what event, maybe it was the community wine sale or something. And the email was something along the lines of, it's now just a month to Pesach. Sorry, ladies. And <laughs> we are. <laughs> so come out for that. And I sent the this very well-meaning, like, thought he was just making kind of a joke guy um, who was responsible for this promotional. He was just the guy organizing the wine sale. And I even, and I was trying to be nice. And I was like, listen, you know, I, I hate to be picky, but it would be great if my community did not send out official communications that imply that only women are required to clean for Pesach. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, you see that, but I think that in... I wonder if this is true to an extent in all three of our households, that the disparity in responsibilities probably has less to do with gender and more to do with the fact that um, my husband and I were raised with different sets of expectations around what preparing for Pesach looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and so to the extent that I feel like I'm responsible to spearhead something, some of that is just like coming out of my psyche because I have the sense that if we don't do it, if I don't take the lead, then we won't do it my way. And my way clearly is more legitimate. So it has to happen, right? That's that's on me more than anything else. Um, 
I mean, but I think that does extend to a little bit of like a mental load concern about division of household labor. There's, it's less about who does and more about who makes sure that it's done. Um, and that's not insignificant, I think. But I also think that neuroses about Pesach cleaning are, there's an interesting generational thing happening. Maybe you guys have not seen this, but in my peers, what I have seen is that there was this sense that all our parents went way overboard. Everybody like, listen, you don't need to like vacuum your curtains for Pesach guys. Like it doesn't matter. Like <laughs> crumbs or not. Are you suggesting that you don't regularly <laughs> lick your curtains? <laughs> Cats out of the bag guys. Um, so but yeah, the, the notion that like this rebellion against spring cleaning as Pesach cleaning feels like, I don't know, people in their 30s, early 40s, there's like this pushback. And then it felt like for a while, all of my peers were doing what felt like a radically insufficient amount of cleaning because it was like an overcorrection. And I'm like, really, you didn't even bother to clean your bedroom? Like, don't you ever snack in there? Like, um, and then... Now I feel like we're all equilibrating. Hmm. I don't know if I feel that that um, that particular shift has happened in my in my friend group. I still feel like I see a lot of people doing a level of cleaning where I'm like, <laughs> I OK, I, I have never eaten in there. So, um, I mean, it's fine to clean your coat closet, but also like I have never brought a sandwich in there. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I have seen that, but I did like grow up in a community in which like it was um, like the Beit Yaakov. I think this is just true. The Beit Yaakov schools like often close in the month of Nisan, like they're they're closed for the whole month of Nisan leading up to Pesach because the expectation is that girls will be at home helping their mothers clean for Pesach. Tamar, you know where I first encountered that idea of closing for those two weeks? In the where? BY Times books. <laughs> <laughs> Call back. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, it is like a, it's a thing. So, and even though like I was certainly never from enough to go to Basiaco school, LOL. Um, I, I lived, I lived in, in that world to some extent. Um, and so I was very aware of it. And like, I, uh, yeah, I do still see people cleaning to a degree where I'm like, whoa, that, that seems untenable to me. Like people who talk I hear a lot of people talk about going through every page of every book in their house, which like I <laughs> like would not be possible. I would have to start like after just like when Pesach went out, like the next morning I have <laughs> to start going through all my books. Like, it's just not I don't. I have so many books that that's just not possible. And like most Jewish families that I know are similarly heavily booked. <laughs> so it just seems like not tenable, but I know people who do it. And like, I have vivid memories of a childhood friend of mine, like three weeks before Pesach being like, so 
my mom has already cleaned like these five rooms for Pesach. So if we want to eat any food, we have to like basically like the area in which they could eat shrunk day by day as Pesach got closer. But like that started way earlier than like for me it's like two days before Pesach you can only eat chametz in the kitchen or at the dining room table or outside um and like there's no like restrictions around that um so yeah I don't some of this is a mark of how much space exists in your home yeah like it's very different to clean for Pesach in a one-bedroom apartment than it is in a five-bedroom house um, or a house that has a separate kitchen for Pesach or for the week before Pesach, depending on how your family uses their separate kitchen, which is a whole genre of Jewish household architecture. Um, you know, so people have designated systems that sort of align with the space that's available to them. Yeah, I think. that is true. Mimi, you had found this article by Judy Battalion. So we had, for uh, longtime listeners, a while back, we had reviewed a memoir called White Walls by Judy Battalion. I think this is like three, maybe four years ago, um, about her experience as the daughter of a hoarder um, and, a, you know, a Holocaust survivor descendant. And it was a very interesting meditation on uh, relationships and how that's manifest in part in clutter versus emptiness mm-hmm. of home. And so she wrote an interesting piece um, in, uh, I think, Tablet yep. called The Festival of Cleaning. Uh, yeah, the festival of cleaning with whether you're a hoarder or a neat freak, Passover gives families a chance to get rid of the mess together. She wrote this in 2016. Um, I found this to be an interesting article, Mimi, in a way it calls back to what you were saying before about involving your family in the um, process, because one of the things she ruminates on in this piece is she was in some aspects of her life using cleaning as a form of distancing, right? Like I, I can't be like, close to you and all your mess and craziness, my children, my spouse, because I need to keep this zone clear and ordered and clean for me in life. And that that manifested especially in Pesach cleaning and the difficulty in inviting other people in and making it a sort of a messier cleaning process and what that means for it being a family activity and a family holiday. Yeah, I um, was inspired for this year, in part by the, this piece in Tablet about to to bring my family in, um, you know, I think that a lot of times when you bring other people into a process that is inspired by anxiety or neuroses, in part, what you have to do is let go of the control. Though you're trying to share the work, you have to let go of the control, right? Um, and I think for me, and I think also for the author of the piece, not being tied down by the strictures of halakha necessarily mean that, okay, if it's not as clean as I might want it to be, or as some might need it to be, that's okay because I've brought other, because there's another value at play here, which is bringing others into the process. Now, I'm not sure if you are 
if it's really important to you that all of the chametz be gone from your house, including from every from within every page of your book, I I, I don't know what that looks like to bring family in. I'm, I think probably some some communities, some families have been able to do that. Um, the whole, for me, the whole, it's a whole new world, cleaning for, cleaning in general, but also cleaning for Passover with a child. Um, it just brings in more challenges. And in part, this is my reframe to say it's not about more challenges. It's about more opportunity to connect um, and share. I don't know, Tamar, you have older children than I do. Like, <laughs> tell me about the the challenge of kids bringing them in and cleaning up after them. I don't worry too much about it. Like I, I, I we do involve my older um, stepdaughter in in the cleaning, but like I've tried to frame it more recently as just kind of like general, like getting rid of stuff we don't need and like being kind of aware of our space and like what's here that we could maybe get rid of. It's not particularly around chametz, although like, you know, we do definitely be like, can you please like take everything out of your backpack and like hold it over the garbage and shake it? <laughs> and then maybe like, we'll put it in the washing machine kind of thing. But like beyond that, it's not so much about that. And for my younger daughter, she's not at a stage where she's like, bringing food all over the house at this point. So it's pretty contained. Parenting is one of the primary sources of anxiety in my life, but weirdly not around Pesach. <laughs> when I was growing up, um, I'm trying to remember what my responsibility was in cleaning for Pesach. And of course, I'll, I'll always remember like the things that came into play when I was older more easily. Um, but I think that I would be responsible for my room. Mm -hmm. And then like, I might get discreet jobs, like um, tomorrow, the, the coat closet thing that you were making fun of before. I mean, like my job might be like, check all the pockets, like basically like all the pockets and the coats and jackets that are hanging in there. Let's make sure that like, there are no like lollipops left over from the shul candy man. Like there's nothing like no actual food in the pockets. Okay. Um, what about, so, so there would be like discrete specific things. Um, we never flipped through all our books. Um, but there would be like a couple of specific jobs and then there would be my room and then there would be, don't mess up the work that's happening elsewhere. Right. Um, so yeah, totally. seems, I don't know, in retrospect, like a reasonable level of responsibility. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I wish us all the best of luck in our cleaning endeavors. Um, and also I wish to remind us all that regardless of how good of a job we do, we're going to say something that says that it's all dust to us. So like perhaps give yourself permission to not feel as stressed about it as you might otherwise feel. Or if that is an important part of your spiritual practice, then who am, who am I to judge? <laughs> or do. Um, all right. I think we should move along <laughs> to our endorsements. Zahava, what do you have to endorse this week? Okay, this endorsement came to me um, by way of my husband because it's from a TV show that he's been watching on Netflix. Um, so John Favreau, the uh, actor-director, um, who it turns out actually uh, is Jewish. His mom is Jewish. Um, 
and his father is Italian Catholic. So he was in a movie a few years ago called Chef, in which he played a chef. And as part of his research, he like shadowed and got to know some serious chefs. And this sparked an interest and led to this documentary Netflix show in which he and well-known chef Roy Choi are going around from kitchen to kitchen around the country and well-regarded restaurants. It's called The Chef Show. And there is an episode at Wexler's Deli in Los Angeles, which is a uh, Jewish-style deli. And it's interesting because John Favreau, who was raised on uh, Ashkenazi Jewish food, um, and Roy Choi, who was not, um, are in Wexler's Deli, which it turns out is co-run by an Ashkenazi Jew and a guy who is Lebanese, not Jewish, and just from New York and considers Jewish deli food part of his culinary culture because he's so New York. Um, And (laughs) it was interesting to watch the differences between like John Favreau, who's been going from like chef's kitchen to chef's kitchen, but from his Jewish food background and Roy Choi, who is a professional chef coming to the same place to watch them like smoke five kinds of locks and what they do with the pastrami sandwich and how they make matzo balls. And it was just interesting watching Roy Choi like question certain Jewish food orthodoxies. He's like watching them make matzo balls. And he's like, to me, that just, that process just looks like a pasta Mm -hmm. deal. Like, why wouldn't you just treat that like a pasta? Like, I would love to see that treated like, um, like a tamale, like you could stuff things inside it. It's like, let's try making a matzo ball with bits of pastrami, like stuffed inside it in the broth. How would that work out? And then the crazy moment is when he's like, have you ever tried making a sandwich that was both lox and pastrami? And then John Favreau <laughs> and um, the, the owner of the deli, Michael Wexler, are just like, nope, never did that. And so Roy Choi <laughs> tries it. And then at the end, and they're all like, huh, this is good. And Roy Choi is like, well, when I suggested this, it's not even like you were offended. It's like it didn't even register as like a possibility that one might consider in the world of food. Like why would – and they don't have the vocabulary for this. But, of course, in traditional kashrut, combining meat and fish is itself a no-no. Um, so it's just interesting to watch the like different experiences around this Jewish deli situation. It's not a kosher deli. It's like a Jewish-style deli. I think they put Swiss cheese on some of their sandwiches. But um, – it's, it was just interesting to watch the cultures collide. So it's the Wexler's Deli episode of The Chef Show on Netflix. Sounds fun. Awesome. I'm totally going to watch that. Mimi, what do you have to recommend? This? So I was thinking um, about Eddie Halasum, um and this idea of pre-war feminism, um, Jewish intellectualism. And I was remembering back to an episode of Transparent, um, which we watched, I think maybe the first three or four episodes for um, an episode of Talking in Shul several years ago. Um, There's an episode in which one of the children thinks back to pre-war Berlin. Um, And do you remember this episode, Tamar? You're, You're nodding. Yeah, I think it was yeah. in season two. So uh, I'll include a link to um, a summary of this episode. But in it, you, you get to see sort of this 
transgressive Jewish com- not Jewish community, I should say. It's like it's a community of of people. Some of them happen to be Jewish in Berlin. Um, there's a lot of cross-dressing, a lot of um, just sort of anarchist mentality generally. Um, and I I love one of the things that I loved about this episode is the freedom to imagine um, the intellectual and sexual and communal and social lives of of people who we've lost and of this tradition that we lost. Um, so that's one thing that I'll link to. Um, and then, as you guys know, I love some silly holiday-related um items, material items. So I'm also really want to recommend, um, this is from the Modern Tribe store. There is a matzah scrunchie that is just so cute. And I'm buying for my niece this year. And so I will include a link to the matzah scrunchie. That's awesome. That is awesome. So I would like to, um, endorse, um, first I want to endorse something called uh, Pesach points, which I feel like I talked about on the show in the past, but I don't see it in the show notes in the past. So perhaps I didn't. Basically, Pesach points are um, a concept that you can celebrate as you are getting rid of things in preparation for Pesach. So basically, like if you use up the last of the oatmeal a couple of weeks before Pesach, like when you have used something up, you could say that you've got Pesach points. Um, and you're not actually keeping track of them, I guess, unless you're like really intense about such things. But it's just a kind of way of like kind of giving yourself, people in your family, a kind of high five for like, yes, we have gotten rid of something else. We're doing the thing where we try and get rid of all of our chamades in preparation for Pesach. So um, it's like brownie points, except that, you know, um, <laughs> it is potato starch yeah, brownie true. points. Brownie <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, anyways, I we have uh, a friend of ours introduced us to this concept. They said that the, in their house, like around Tubishvat, if you like used up a box of cereal or anything else, you would be like, get some Pesach points here, and um, that really stuck with us and now we like really start thinking about Pesach points like a shockingly long time before Pesach so anyways please please enjoy your own Pesach point system if that um if that appeals to you um but my real endorsement is for a poem by Yehuda Amichai that I um always think about in the spring it's called now that the water presses hard and it's short so I'll read it Now that the water presses hard on the walls of the dam, now that the returning white storks in the middle of the firmament turn into flocks of jet planes, we will feel again how strong are the ribs, how bold the warm air and lungs, how urgent the daring to love in the open plain, when great dangers arch overhead, and how much love is needed to fill all the empty vessels and the watches that stop telling time, and how much breath, a blizzard of breath, to sing the little song of spring. So uh, that's my favorite Beautiful. springtime poem. Uh, 
All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you could also let us know what you'd like us to discuss on future episodes. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media to find it, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Chill from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can keep bringing you new shows every month. Thank you so much, Zahava. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. We'll see you next month.